church, I'd like to give you just a, a quick word, if you will. Normally, right then, I would have had an altar call. And uh, we, we could have, but I feel that we're going to have an altar call at the end of this message. And all I ask for you to do today is to, to put your arms down, relax in the spirit. What I mean by that is be open, be receptive. I have prayed for you. Others have prayed for you that today you would hear the message, that you would hear the gospel of Jesus. No matter what's preached today, everything's going to point back to him always. The music, the message, what the kids learn, all gets pointed back to Jesus. Every other, every other quote-unquote hope that we find is a false hope, a limited hope, a hope that will, will lag, a hope that will come up short eventually. And so what we want today is for you to meet Jesus. And I say, Pastor, I met Jesus a long time ago. Well, let's meet him again. It's a brand new day. Let's meet him all over again. Amen? All right, turn your, turn your Bibles to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As you turn there, I'm going to ask you a question. This is something I like to do every year. I like to think about the people in my life. I like to think about who are my friends and my family right now. Then I like to compare it to last year. Who's still there? Who's left? Who unfortunately has passed away? Who's moved away? Who maybe showed their true colors? Turned out they weren't really a friend, and we had to cut them out of our lives for a time. You know, I like to compare that. Who Who is the Lord? And this is the best part. Who has the Lord brought into my life that's now that's now more than just an acquaintance? They're now a friend. They're they're a brother or a sister in Christ. They're somebody who who I can call on and rely on, and I and I could do the same for them. And then I like to compare that to five years ago. For my wife and I, the people that we are living with and 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 walking with. Are, is completely different than just five years ago. We moved from one coast to the other, so the folks that we used to uh, live with, you know, have life with daily, are now 3,000 miles away. And they're still our family. They're still our, our, our friends, and, and, and we're still uh, united to them through Jesus, but distance does make things difficult. So today, five years later, the group of people that we you know, most associate with and most live life with is completely different. Compare that to 10 years ago. 10 years ago, praise God, some people have come back into our lives from 10 years ago. Others are completely gone, and, and some we thought would be there forever, and others just fell away. Then I look at my life maybe even 20 years ago. You know, that, that's when I was 16 years old. I was sitting in my room playing video games. Working my part-time job. Didn't know anybody. No friends. Just isolated. Just all by myself. And, and honestly, content with that a little bit. A little bit of an introvert. Look back on your life. Who's been there? Who's come and gone? Who's come, gone, and come back? Who's betrayed you? Who has dishonored you or disserviced you? Who has accused you of stuff? Who has always been constant? Who's... Who has left because of distance or left because of death? There is an absolute need and necessity for us as Christians to be together and united. And when we are apart from one another, there's, there's a distance there that, that we feel and experience. And, and it's not that pleasant. Now, I talk about our friends from five years ago. You know, Those are people that I still wish were in my life here today, but because of distance, they're not. Now, I mentioned that, and I get you started to get the ball rolling in your head uh, for that thought process, because we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And in our, our sermon series, Holy Ghost, the God You Never Knew, there's something we need to be reminded of or to be taught all over again, or to just come to know for, for the first time ever, that the Holy Spirit of God has come to dwell in us. And while people might come and go, the Holy Spirit has come and has begun building in you a permanent residence. The Holy Spirit has come to fill you as a Christian, as a Christ follower, for a multitude of reasons. But before we ever can believe for any of the reasons, we have to believe this simple promise. That the Holy Spirit is there and in us and he will never leave us. See, we have friends that will come and go. We have family that will come and go. We have people who will betray us. We have people who will stick closer to us than a brother. 
However, they will be separated by distance. We will have our skirmishes. We'll have our little quarrels. But with the Holy Spirit, the great promise, the great assurance by Jesus, the great assurance by the gospel is that we do not have a God who is transient. He comes in, sets up shop, and then he leaves. We sin, we scare him off, and then he's got to run. Oh no, Tony sinned. I got to leave before I get touched by the sin. We don't have a God that loses interest in us. Trust me, he would have by now. We're not that great, right? I mean, there are days where we are just at our worst. And if anybody had an excuse to leave us, it's God. Let's just be honest with ourselves. He doesn't lose interest in us. He doesn't step back and say, you know what? You weren't worth it. On second thought, I take it back. On second thought, Jesus dying for you, that's too much. I take back what I have invested in you. It's not worth it. We serve a God that's completely opposite of that. A God who has come and that through faith in Jesus and what he has done has come to set up residence in us, to dwell in us forever. The very Holy Spirit is a, is a, is a to use human terminology, a down payment or a deposit. If you've ever bought something large, a house or a car, you'll go in and if you've got to use uh, credit, you put down a down payment, right? What does that prove to the seller? That you're serious, that you're coming back, that you are invested, that you want this. I, I worked in real estate for a while and folks that came in and weren't willing to put down a down payment, we knew they weren't serious about buying a home. We knew they were just hoping for someone to just give them something. They were just looking for a handout. They weren't looking for a home. Not all of them, but a lot of them. They wanted something for nothing. But people who really wanted their own home, they'd come in and say, look, look what I've accumulated. I will give you this to show you how serious I am, that I will return, that I will bring the rest of the money. I will pay everything in full. Church, we have been given Jesus, and we have been given the Holy Spirit, a down payment, a deposit, that Jesus will return, that Jesus will come back. We must constantly live in this belief of the truth that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. That Jesus will, in fact, rule and reign forever. That we will stand before his throne and we will be found righteous or unrighteous. Well, pastor, how, do I, how am I found righteous? You are found righteous if you are in Christ Jesus. If you stand before God, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did this at the church, I did this for my friends, I was always giving, I always tithe, I always went to church. But you don't know Jesus, and he is not your everything. If you are not completely in him, that's the terminology of the New Testament, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are not in Christ today, the condemnation hangs. The sin is still needs to be paid for. And you will pay that price one day outside of Christ. In Christ, you have his righteousness. Oh, don't, don't get to that last day and stand in your own righteousness. The Bible says it hangs on us like filthy rags. And that's the cleaned up version of that word. If you research the Hebrew word that, that, that the writer of Isaiah uses for filthy rags, it's, it's the cloths that women would use during their menstruation period. The time where they would, it, it's just filthiness and gross. And, and, and that's your righteousness in and of yourself. Well, Pastor Tony, shouldn't I do good things? Absolutely. When you love Jesus and he loves you, you, will not, you cannot help but do good things. You just, you just want to help people. You don't care if you get anything in return. You just want to, oh, you need a ride? I'll give you a ride. Oh, you need a meal? I'll give you a meal. Why? Because I love Jesus and he loves me. And it's my, it's my privilege and honor to serve somebody else. See, how do we accomplish that practically? We need the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you will do that for a time. There's tons of people on the earth today who do great stuff, give millions of dollars, serve and volunteer, but they do it in their own power and it comes to an end. And it's their own righteousness. And if they stand before God with it, Nothing. However, if you put your life in Jesus, if you are in Christ through faith, you believe what Jesus has done on the cross, 
was not just something he did for the world, but something he did for you. That without the cross, you are, you are in horrible, horrible trouble. That you will, you will stand and you will face the fires of hell. If you believe that Jesus has paid your price, then you are in Christ Jesus. And you might fail at everything the rest of your life, but you will be in Jesus. And you will fail as a child trying to please their father rather than a mini-God trying to take over the God. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell in the believers of Jesus based on the promise that Jesus gave to us through his word, based on the workings of miracles, based on the workings of, of, of prophetic words, based on the preaching and the teaching of the Bible. We have the Holy Spirit. And he's not going to leave us nor forsake us. You turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? In the Old Testament, the Jews, they worshipped in a temple. First a tabernacle, a, a mobile tent, big and elaborate. And then in Solomon's time, King David and then continuing to Solomon's time, they built this giant temple. If you do the research... Modern day price of this temple was upwards of five and a half billion dollars with all the gold and all the elaborate work and the stonework and everything. It's just a massive monument, this big place to worship God. And when they dedicated this place, they sang and they worshiped and they sacrificed and this, this cloud of God, the Spirit of God engulfed it so much so that it was almost impossible to penetrate it, to go, to go into the temple. And Paul says, you are that temple. That in the way that the Spirit of God filled the temple, the Spirit of God fills you. But right away, Paul's going to, and I'm going to, attack your pride. Pride is a devilish, horrible thing. Pride masquerades as so many other things, but pride must be suffocated and strangled and crucified in your life today. Every po point, every part of this message today will fall on deaf ears if you are in the sin of pride. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthian church. Do you not know? He's writing to a church. He's writing to a leadership team. Somebody somewhere must have taught this concept that you are the temple of God. But yet Paul's going to attack that. Don't you know this? Now he's not saying it snarky like I kind of just did. It's more of an inquisition. Don't you don't you know this? Don't, don't you haven't you been taught this? Church, some of you know this. You you understand it conceptually, but in reality and practically and daily, it's it's a distant who knows. I, I don't know what that's really like. I know it to be true, but I don't see how it works in my life. Some of you will, out of pride, say, well, I know what that means. Yeah, I, I know all that stuff. I've been taught that a long time ago, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I know all about the Spirit of God. But yet your life will tell me otherwise. Your life will pro profess a different truth. And today, if your pride gets in the way, you won't learn, you won't receive from God. Pride always puts up a wall. Pride always gives a false facade that, that we got everything together. Church, please, if I've ever given you the false impression that I have everything together, I repent of that today. I do not have all things together. I was not put here because I have all things together. Quite honestly, I question God as to why he put me anywhere. But I trust him knowing that, that who he calls and where he places them, he has a reason and a purpose. And so I simply trust. And then I... Confess, Lord, I don't know. Confess today. Lord, Lord I, don't, I don't know this. I think I know. I've been taught it, but I want to know. Let your pride come tumbling down like a brick wall being hit with that big wrecking ball and just let it be destroyed so that you might understand and know the truth that you are this great temple, that the Spirit of God, like the Spirit in the temple of the Old Testament, is in you working through you, correcting you, rebuking you, uh, encouraging you, loving you, counseling you, comforting you. 
we want to, through this whole series, but especially today, become re-familiar with or become newly acquainted with and become good friends with the Holy Spirit. Some of us, we understand the Father and then we understand Jesus and we totally neglect the Holy Spirit. Others still overemphasize the Holy Spirit. They, they chase miracles and they chase, they chase the things that the Holy Spirit can do rather than the Holy Spirit that is God. And we must become acquainted with him. We must get to know him. In doing so, we realize this great promise, this promise that first was given in the book of Deuteronomy to the Israelites, then later, later echoed by the author of Hebrews in chapter 13, that God will never leave us nor forsake us. We live in a world today, and maybe it wasn't like this 20 years ago or 30 years ago, but we live in a day and an age today where people come and go in our lives so quickly. People will come in, they'll be at a job for two, three, four years, and then they leave. They come up here and they realize, oh, it's central New York, I need to go. And then they leave. And they go back to some place where it's warmer or sunnier or there's better jobs or a better government. But in Deuteronomy chapter 31, it says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. See, the Israelites are about to go into battle. And, and, and while they might have a great number of people, they're, they're not a warrior people. They're not a warring type. And the command is, is go not because you're mighty. Go not because you're great in number. Go because you have God. And you don't have to be afraid that in the thick of battle, God's going to be like, uh-oh. And just take off like Scooby-Doo. But God's going to be right there in the front, that God's going to be in the back, that God's going to be working miraculous victory in their lives. And so in the book of Hebrews, the writer echoes that to us. He repeats that to us, that God will never leave us nor forsake us. Now some of us are afraid that God will indeed leave us and forsake us because we've given him good reason. Right? We sin and we realize... Why wouldn't he leave? I've given him every reason to. I've yelled at him. I've, I've cursed him. I've, I've neglected him. I've, ab I've abandoned. Him. I've left and forsaken him. Why wouldn't he do the same? Because he has promised you that he would not. The promises of God are yes and amen. The Bible says, if God has promised to never leave you nor forsake you, then you can be assured in every part of who you are that God will be there from day one for all of eternity. But what if I lose my salvation? You would have already if you could. That's like a parent saying, but what if what if I stop being my father's son? What if I stop being my father's daughter? Some of you have children and those children will always be your children. They did nothing to become your children other than just be born. You are Christians today simply because you were born again through Jesus. And, and the Lord's grip on you is tighter than any wiggling or squirming you can do to get out of his hand. And there might be times where God feels distant. And there might be times where you are running. There might be times where you are the prodigal son. You have left to, to spend all that you have that your father has given you on, on, on uh, just horrible living. But he will allow you through his grace to see the emptiness of that so that you might come back to find the open arms of a father, ready to forgive, ready to, to reinstitute, to bring you back to where you once were. He has not let go of you. He has simply watched you from a distance, allow you to do something stupid, so that you can see the folly in it. You ever just watch your kids and let them do something, you know it's going to fail, but you just let them do it, so they can feel that? You know if you do that, you're going to hurt yourself. No, I'll be all right. Fine. Go ahead. Now you sit there and you watch. I mean, you don't give them a nail gun and then let them, you know, they're five. And let's see how this turns out. No, what I mean is you, they want to try something. They want, they're going to be adventurous. They're going to, I think this will work out in my, in my favor. All right, let's watch. And you're right behind them. You're waiting to catch them. And you're waiting to let them fall to make sure they don't get too hurt. But you let them feel that for a little bit. You let them get up and dust themselves off and say, Wow, that was stupid, Dad. I should not have done that. 
I don't believe I like that, and I don't believe I'll do it again. So you tell a child not to do something, what happens? Oh, I want to do it even more. I gotta jump off the roof with an umbrella. Dad won't let me. Mom won't let me. It must be fun. No, I don't let my kids jump off the roof with an umbrella. But I will let them try new things. I will make sure, too, and this is just a side note, I'll make sure it's not my own fear and my own insecurities that, that is boxing them in from trying something brand new. Maybe I'm afraid, but they're not. i got to let them try that. Maybe my fear and insecurities is what's limiting them. I don't want that. And maybe through their example, I'll see, oh, that's not so fearful. That's not something I should be insecure about. Going back to the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. I liken it to this. God has come in. He has a recliner. He's sitting it down in the, the house that is your heart, and he's not moving. He's comfortable there. He wants to stay. He's turned on the TV. He's got himself a drink, and he's not going anywhere. He is set. He is settled in you. He is ready to dwell and live and operate from that place. Think about for a moment. The God of all creation, perfect in every way, way, holy and pure, and then he comes in to this dark and dirty place known as the core of our being, our soul and our heart, and says, yeah, I'm going to fix up that place. You ever been to an old abandoned house? Like, you don't know if you're going to fall through the floor? Oh, I used to show houses, and sometimes you you show houses in real estate, and they'd be an easy thing to sell because they're beautiful. But sometimes it's like, yeah, this is a fixer-upper. You know, it doesn't have a roof, but you know, it's fixer-upper, still on fire from a previous accident. But you know, that's we can take care of that. And you just look at it and go, I don't want to live there. I don't. I, that's too much work. God looks at our heart and doesn't say that's too much work. He goes and says, Yeah, I can work with this. The Spirit of God has come to dwell in us. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, Paul begins to preach. Excuse me. Peter begins to preach. He begins to preach what we know know as the, uh, the first sermon outside of Jesus preaching. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. And so Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, watches all these men be filled with the Holy Spirit, begin to speak in other tongues, that other people can understand. It's other languages that, that other nations could decipher and understand. Peter looks and remembers. Now, I don't know how. He's, he's, he's fisherman Peter. You know, he hasn't gone to rabbinical school his whole life. He's just been taught like every other little Jewish boy, the, the scriptures, and then he became a, a fisherman like his dad, like his family trade. And he remembers something that the prophet Joel said. He says this, he begins to quote out of Joel chapter 2, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the lord comes the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the lord shall shall be saved like pouring out a pitcher of water god has poured out his spirit upon all flesh who is excluded from this nobody for the believer in Jesus, this is for everyone. Don't gloss over the fact that in Joel, that God through the prophet Joel, now through Peter, that God has included both men and women. In a, in a, a, a society when this was written that was dominated by, by men, God points out, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, male and female, both. We have a, a great disbalance in our culture where, where one sex is, is elevated above the other. And there's never a balance. It's always, it's always this imbalance one way or the other. Church, we were equally made and created in the image of God. And 
and there is an order and there is a place, but but where men lead and where women follow, it's not a it's not a, a, a slave mentality. It's that we're both pieces of a puzzle that fit together that make up a greater picture that is Jesus. In John 16, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. So now, so now let's just say you're a Christian now. You, you've heard the, the appeal. I'm giving my life to Jesus. I need to be forgiven. I'm a sinner because the Bible says that I am. My actions prove that I am. I need Jesus' forgiveness so that I am in him so Pastor Tony stops yelling at me. So now you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit of God. Now what? This is the part that takes Christians by surprise. We're now at war. There is now inside you a war that is crazy, boiling over, raging with the, the, the greatest fire that you will ever know outside of God. There is a war between the Holy Spirit of God and your very own flesh. We have three main enemies as a Christian. We have the world whom we are to go out to and preach the gospel. Um, we have Satan, who should be squashed under the foot of Jesus, and that's where he is to remain. But yet he will try to tempt you to sin and do all that. He's a jerk. It's what he does. Don't be surprised when he does jerky things. But the greatest enemy we have is our flesh. Because the flesh is us. The flesh cannot be removed. The flesh goes with us we can we can rebuke satan we can we can be in the presence of god we can be with like-minded a community of believers but the flesh follows along until the day we die and not a day sooner that flesh and the holy spirit of god will fight and butt heads and always be in conflict for something that either one of them wants the flesh will want to gratify the flesh and the spirit will say no Satisfy the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul goes to great lengths. Those who believe in Jesus, those who walk with God, they walk to please the Spirit. They are filled by the Spirit to please the Spirit. But those who are in the flesh, they look to, they look to gratify the flesh. They do things like become idol worshipers. I said, Pastor Tony, I don't, I don't have any idols in my house. Sometimes an idol is shaped like a television. Sometimes an idol is shaped like... A computer screen, sometimes an idol is shaped like a child, sometimes an idol is shaped like food. And for me, that one hits home more than any other. Sometimes an idol doesn't look like a small statue in your home. It looks like something else that's good, but you've elevated it to a place of God. And so now you have this battle. And some people aren't ready for the battle. Well, I thought we were going to just have flowers and muffins and potlucks. What's this war you talk about, Tony? What's this, what's this war you're talking about? If you've ever come to a place where you were wanting to sin, but you know that you shouldn't, there's the war. Exemplified perfectly. I don't want to lie, but I'm afraid to not lie. There's the war. I love my wife, but here's porn. There's the war. I'm afraid if I don't keep working that I'll be left alone. That's, that's the war. I mean, I may not have enough money. There's the war. Maybe no one will ever love me. There's the war. Flesh is so afraid to lose. The flesh is so afraid to give in. The flesh is so prideful. And the Spirit comes in to combat that. The good news is, is that the Spirit of God is bigger than our flesh. But the Bible tells us repeatedly, the flesh is not to be bartered with. We don't call a truce with the flesh. We don't give in to the flesh. We don't give the flesh a foothold. What do we do? Crucify the flesh. Cru now, do we nail ourselves to a cross? No, please don't go and do that. We're not going to have a crucifixion service where we nail you to a cross because I will get arrested. And we're not going to do that. What does that mean? That means you identify through the Holy Spirit the desires of your heart that are impure, and then you suffocate them. By not giving in to him. There's a story in the Old Testament. I don't remember where it is. You can look for it, Google it, whatnot. Um, where there's this war. And this was a common practice back in the day. Where you'd have a fortified city. Walls, very mighty city, very strong. So the, surround, the invading army would say, you know what? 
will surround it and eventually they'll run out of food. Eventually they'll run out of supplies. Eventually they will begin to starve. And at that point, we will attack because they will be at their weakest. We will starve them, suffocate them in their mighty fortress. See, church, with the flesh, we must do the same. There are times where the burning passions of our flesh will be so strong, our only hope is to flee to God, thus suffocating our flesh. And it's not easy. We're probably going to lose more than we win. I'll just be real honest with you. You ever gotten too close to a fire and, and burnt the hairs on your hand? Maybe the hairs on your face? It's a little too close. That, that's going to happen spiritually. You're going to get too close and you're going to feel the pain. But you're also going to have victory. There are going to be days where you do through Jesus because the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. You conquer. You win. You battle. And you stand at the end of the day. I did it! And then you wake up the next day and almost as soon as you wake up, you fall again. Ah! I'm not here to tell you that you're going to live a life of perfection. I'm here to tell you that Jesus will be there that next day to dust you off, to pick you up, to get the singed clothing off you, to get you cleaned up again so that you can keep walking. All right, let's run it again. Okay, let's do it again. Because God is not afraid of your sin. I used to walk around like if I sinned, God would just run. Like he would just bolt out the door. Oh, Tony, send out of here. As if, as if God would not have done that from day one. Like, like he just took so much, like that's it, threw up his arms and left. Until I began to read the Bible and realize, oh, he's not afraid of my sin. Now, I shouldn't sin, and I should live a life that is glorifying to Jesus, but, but if I do fall into sin, that God will not leave me nor forsake me. That grace will not give me license to sin. Grace will show me the gravity of my sin so that I no longer have a taste for it. Some of you have given your life to Jesus, and he cleaned up a lot of things really quick, like boom, 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 big things, little things. And now you're at a place where it's just that one thing. That one thing, whatever it is, is just eating at you, and you can't get over it. It's one of the reasons why we're teaching on fasting on Wednesday nights. You know, for me, my big struggle my whole life, since I've been about eight years old, has been overeating. I'm a big old I, – I could eat all day long. I could, just, I could just eat and eat and eat and eat. And sometimes I have to eat because I'm hungry, just like the rest of us. But there's times where I eat, not because I'm hungry, but because I'm burnt out. Gosh, just, what a long day. If I could just get this or that, that would just be so good, and then I'll feel great. Or then it's just, wow, that tastes really good. And I'm going to eat until I feel like I'm going to explode. Well, that's not good. Or maybe there's times where, Food just becomes an idol to me if I just only had that thing. If I just had that, Jesus way back there, you go, oh, pizza, wings, something. That's hard. So what I had to do was I had to begin to fast. I had to appeal to God and say, God, um, I, I'm out of control. I have no control. Fasting is not magic. It's not like I fast and God gives me what I want. If you come up with a process that gets you what you want from God, I'm going to just call that out and say, I don't think that's God answering your prayers. If you're manipulating God, you're dealing with somebody who's not God. But what it helped me, what it did for me is it showed me, it reminded me of my depravity outside of God, and it reminded me that with God in control, I do have self-control. And this is a long, arduous battle. And there are days where I lose more than I like to remember. But there are days where I am victorious as well. See, this is the part where I present to you my five-step program to weight loss through the Daniel Fast and all that. No, that's not. No. But what I'm telling you is this, that fasting along with worship and prayer does a great and mighty thing in the life of a believer. When every other avenue has been exhausted. And sometimes we must exhaust every other avenue so that we realize that prayer and fasting is great, greatly beneficial to the believer. Romans 8 and 5 says, For those living according to the flesh set their minds on, one, on the things of the flesh, but those living, uh, who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For if it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Hostile, death, those aren't good words. 
That's the, that's the people who are set on the flesh rather than the spirit. Galatians 5 and 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And Romans 7, and if you haven't read Romans, read the book of Romans like as soon as you get home especially chapter 7, Paul goes to great lengths to reveal this great Paul, this great Paul whom we all read in the New Testament of, he goes to great lengths to say, I am a wretched, wretched man. The things I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do them. And I just am constantly back and forth and vacillating here and there and, and all wretched man that I am, he says. The great Paul Vision on the road to Damascus, Paul. Blinded by the presence of God, Paul. Preacher to thousands. Walker of hundreds if not thousands of miles. Starter of who knows how many churches. Writer of the books of the New Testament that we still learn from today. Paul, wretched man that I am. You'll read chapter 7 and you'll realize, oh, Paul was a lot like me, and I'm a lot like Paul. Don't coddle your flesh. Now, now don't be don't be blindsided by something called Gnosticism. Here's Gnosticism in a, in a nutshell: that that the spirit is good, the flesh is bad. On that we agree. Flesh is bad; it's corrupt. But where the Gnostics get it wrong, they say that well, since the flesh is bad, do whatever you want with the flesh, then. It's all going to be burned up anyways. It's all going to be changed. Just do whatever you want. Gratify the flesh. You know, do drugs. Have sex with whoever you want. Satisfy any craving you have. And we would say no. Paul says in chapter 5 of Galatians, crucify your flesh. Don't give in to your flesh. Your flesh wants bad things. Your flesh does not want what God wants. That's why the Spirit of God must come in to reside in you. Because in and of yourself, you do not want what God wants. But what does this produce? Who cares, right? At the end of all this, I've given you a lot of knowledge. But what, but what do we do with all that knowledge? Church, for the Christian who has the revelation of the Holy Spirit in them, never leaving, never forsaking, never abandoning, never being afraid, here's what you have produced in that Christian endurance. The ability to keep going when there's no earthly reason to keep going. Anybody can start anything. And I have seen more people come to church, this church, other churches, all gung-ho, fired up to start something, and then a little bit of time goes on and nothing gets finished. I've seen in my own life being gung-ho to get something done, and then in a few weeks, few months, it all fizzles out. No endurance. No fortitude. No integrity. But for the Christian who realizes, oh, I have the Holy Spirit. He will not leave me. He will not forsake me. He has been promised by Jesus. I can keep going. James says it like this in chapter 1 of the book he wrote, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may become perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Church, I'm not asking you to just tough it out. Hey, man, just tough it out. Yeah, I know it hurts. Just tough it out. What I'm saying is realize that you have the Holy Spirit and that these times are hard, that these times hurt, they're painful, and you will endure. You will make it. Church, I'm looking at every one of you. You will make it through this trial. Whatever your trial is, you will make it through, not because you're great, but because you have Jesus. Let those words sink in today. Every trial I'm facing, every pain I'm experiencing, I will overcome them, not because I'm great, but because I have a great God named Jesus in me. Church, I am able to endure, not because Pastor Tony's great, or because I have uh, knowledge of the Bible, or because uh, you know I have this or that. I endure because I have Jesus. The people that I have most greatly admired as Christians, they're those same people. They, they will tell me their life story, and it will be like my hair is standing up and my eyes will be, how did you make it? Jesus. At the end of the day, I knew I had Jesus. 
I knew that he was greater than everything else. I go to Paul and I see, oh, his greatest desire was to know Jesus and Jesus crucified. Not to have some high position, not to be respected or revered by people, because honestly, he usually wasn't. He was beaten and flogged and stoned and, and betrayed and, and cast out. But yet he had Jesus, and because he had Jesus, it was all worth it. Church, you will overcome your trials. I would even venture to say that you could run today, and God will still catch you and bring you through those trials. If you, if you just, no, no, I'm digging my heels in. I'm not going any further. The Lord will just drag you just a little bit at a time through it. Yes, you will. Yes, you will make it through because I want you to make it through. These valleys of the shadow of death hurt, right? Let's just call black, black, and white, white. The valley of the shadow of death, whatever that is for you today, it is painful. It hurts. It's so much longer than the good times, right? I mean, the good times come and we rejoice, and before we're even done putting our hands down, something happens. Ah! And then that time sets in. It's like, well, now this is what we're doing, I guess. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, So we do not lose heart. Verse 16. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen as transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 8. He says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let me give you a very small, minute glimpse into what Paul is saying there. There was a time where I did not have a wife, and there's a time of my life where I do have a wife. I went 21 years without a wife, and I have now gone almost 15 with a wife. These past 15 years are so great that to compare it to the loneliness of the first few years where I was looking for a wife, beyond compare. You can't compare them. To say that, to dwell on the loneliness, the, the, the being without a wife or a significant other in that brief period of time before I met Sarah, it's not worthy to be compared to the greatness of the past 15 years. Has not all been perfect, has not all been roses, but I tell you this, that time, much greater than this previous time. Paul says, what we receive in Christ, it's not even right to compare that to the light affliction we are going through. Well, Paul doesn't know what I'm going through. Well, you don't know what Paul went through. Shipwrecked and snake bitten and betrayed and imprisoned and beaten and flogged and dying and blinded. If you've gone through that and more, then maybe you got more going on than Paul did. But I guarantee you, we all tapped out after shipwreck. He says that was that was light. That was nothing. Not because not because he's sugarcoating it, because he realized that this what he's gaining in Christ is so much more. And so, what does that translate into in his life? Walking. Church to church, preaching the gospel, making disciples, starting new churches, being with like-minded individuals, being with people who would become his family. Not just, not just a, a structure, but, but a living organism known as the family of God. He was able to keep doing that because he had Jesus. Church, I want you to keep going because you have Jesus too. That the same God working in Paul is the same God working in you. And your trials are hard, and they'll still be there tomorrow, but so will Jesus and his abundant grace and mercy to get you through that day. I want to pray for you now. I want to pray for your trials. I want to pray that you would endure through them. I want to pray that when you get done with this trial, that Satan, the world, and your flesh will be sorry 
that they ever stood up and tried to do anything. I, I don't want you just to just barely make it. I want you to stand in the power of God. I want you to stand with your shoulders square, your back straight. I've made it, not because of me, but because of Jesus. I stand, not because of me, but because of what he has done. And whatever the world and Satan and my flesh can throw at me, I will stand regardless. I want that to be you today. I tell you that, that a church full of those types of people will flip this city upside down. We will win generations into Christ, not just individuals, generations to Christ. And I want that, and I hope you want that too. I want to see your families flourish. I want to see you guys love one another. I want to see husbands love wives as they love themselves. I want to see wives love their husbands and respect them and give them honor. I want to see children honoring their parents. I want to see families who in the community, people just look at them and say, I don't get it. I know what they're going through, and they're still smiling. Are they crazy? Are they sadists? Why are they so happy when they're going through so much pain? And you can be able to testify, Jesus. Just a one-word testimony, Jesus. How are you making it? Jesus. Well, what did he do? I don't know, but he did it. Jesus. Stand with me this morning. Ben, come on up. Do you know Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? No? Then play something pretty. It's, it's, you know, doesn't matter. I want to pray with you. And some of you, some of you are thinking, oh, this is too much. Pastor Tony wants too much for me. No. Jesus wants all of you. Jesus wants to be in control of all things of your life. He does not want to have you on Sundays and, and that's it, or just Sundays and Wednesdays. He wants every inch of your life. Now let's be let's let's just be truthful. How many have had control of their life and seen the fruits of that and realized maybe I'm not the best one to be in control? You don't have to raise your hand, but let that kind of sit and marinate for a second. Maybe 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 me being in control has led me to the very place I'm in right now. Because in my power and what I'm doing, this is where it got me. And you realize, yeah, I need somebody else in control. Some of you fear giving up control. Here's the, the big secret. You're, we're never in control. As much as you might think you have a hold on things, it's like a baby saying, I control this human. I control this father or mother. I make them do whatever. No. The baby's at the mercy of the parents. You might feel like you're in control, but that's going back to the pride issue. You're not in control. So why not lift up your hands and surrender? Lord, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I tell you, the Lord can do more with the groanings of your spirit than, than any eloquent words you might be able to say. So pray with me. Let me pray with you. Jesus, I thank you. Your word says that you have promised us the Holy Spirit. Not at one time, not for a season, but for forever. That you will never leave us nor forsake us. You told your disciples that it was good for you to leave because then you would be sending the Comforter and the Counselor. That while you in your physical body could only be at one place at one time, your Holy Spirit could be everywhere and in all people and in all believers. Jesus, I want everybody, especially myself and especially my family and especially this church, to know, to trust, to believe, and to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if this has been overwhelming, Lord, if this has been too much for today, I pray, Lord, for your forgiveness, and I pray that you would parcel that out in the way that needs to be so that we can all receive this word. Lord, I, I believe this is a hard word. I believe this is a word that um, is not easily adopted into our lives, but I pray that it would be. That as, as, we, as we go on just in today, 
that we would allow the Lord to have control of our lives. How foolish for us to think that we, we ever were in control. Lord, we praise you today. Keep your eyes closed. Keep your heads bowed for just a moment. The gospel of Jesus is this, is that that God is good, that God loves you, and he loves you so much that he died on a cross for your sins. That you have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We, we know that truth to be true. Our actions prove it daily. But today you have this great offer to give your life to Jesus. Maybe this is the first time you've heard this message and you just want to give, you want forgiveness. You know where you've been and you know where you're at. Maybe this is a new day where you've, we call it being backslidden. You knew that truth at one time. It burned bright and fervorous in your heart. But then, then the water of the world came and, and, just, and just wet the wood of your heart. God can start a fire anywhere. And if today's that day to rekindle that fire, I want you just to raise your hand. If today's the day to rededicate your life to Jesus all over again, raise your hand today. You may have done this last week. You may have done this last month. But you know where you're at today. You have wandered. You have strayed. The Bible says that that's what we do. Take solace in that. The Bible also says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's our desire today, to be in Christ. Let me pray for those who have raised their hands. Jesus, Lord, we seek the perfection found only in you. And today we want a brand new start. Lord, we, we've started well and we may have continued, but something's happened and now we need to restart. We need a do-over, Lord. I praise you that you're the God of do-overs. I praise you that you're the God of second and third and hundredth chances. I thank you that as often as we fail, you are there to pick us back up, to forgive us as we repent. And Lord, for those who have remained silent over this issue, I'm praying that you would continue to work on their hearts. That as they might flee for whatever reason, Lord, that you would run right alongside them. Show them the folly of their ways, the futility of their choice, that they may fall in your arms. Not into condemnation, but into forgiveness. Not into to judgment or wrath, but into love. And we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.